You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So, what's your tired excuse for not wearing a helmet? Too heavy? Not anymore. Too hot? You literally wear a beanie in your sweltering climbing gym, bro. Too dumb looking? Well, you might have me there, but you know what else is dumb looking? Brain damage. Yes, 25 years ago, all those excuses might have had legs, but Black Diamond's modern helmets shut them all down. The new redesigned half dome is durable, lightweight, lower profile, and sports an improved chin strap and better headlamp clips. It's just a great modern climbing helmet. And it comes at a price point one-tenth of 1% of your average ER visit. But listen, we here at the Enormacast really just want you to consider getting your freaking brain wrapped in a helmet. And while we'd love for you to support Black Diamond, end up in a half dome, or the racier Vector or Vapor, frankly, there's a lot of great lightweight helmets out there, and it's time to reconsider your prejudices for the old brain bucket. So support the Enormacast by checking out Black Diamond's redesigned half dome and all their helmets at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. But if you don't find what you like there, look around and get your brain behind some foam and plastic before it's too late. Does your partner suffer from try-it-again syndrome? Or one hangitis? Or even worse, delusional performance disorder? Well, there really isn't a cure for DPD, except for a good smackdown. But it does probably mean that you've been belaying them for hours and hours on end, and are now suffering from BNP, or belayer neck pain, a stiffness in the cervical spine just below the occipital region of your thick, thick skull. But now there's a cure for BNP resulting from DPD, Ask your doctor about belay specs, and when he doesn't know what the hell you're talking about, just smile and tuck that prescription for opiates away for your next overseas plane flight. But then ask several strangers about belay specs. Ask that cute barista at the coffee shop on the corner about belay specs. In fact, ask everyone you know about belay specs. Keep talking about belay specs until nobody wants to climb with you anyway. Problem solved. But if that doesn't work, then go to belayspecs.com and get yourself a pair. And don't forget to enter EnormoCast at checkout for a discount and to help out the podcast. Side effects may include people thinking you're staring at them when you're not. Old track runners rolling their eyes. People putting them on for the first time saying, ooh, that's trippy. People insisting they don't like those weird glasses even though they've never even tried them. If you feel drowsy, nauseous, rumbling in your stomach, horny, confused, or have strange, vivid dreams, this probably has nothing to do with belay specs. And is more likely from that bug you picked up in that backpacker's hostel in Rio after five too many caipirinhas. Belayspecs.com. Say adeus to belayer neck pain. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big house. place outside of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Like I'll see. You really, really should. Run. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show.
Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is May 24th, about 10.30 in the morning, and this is episode 176 of the Enormacast, a conversation with author, climber from the 80s, and current climber, Jeff Smoot. We had Jeff on my other podcast, The Runout, for a conversation about his book, and we waded through a whole bunch of technical difficulties to get that thing done which is kind of interesting because I've always thought that doing these things face-to-face presented all these problems, mostly just logistical about getting the person in front of me. But doing remote interviews actually causes a lot of freaking problems too. So nothing's that easy to get these things done. Nevertheless, Jeff came to town a few weeks later and I thought I'd go a little bit more in-depth with Jeff and talk to him about his book, Hangdog Days, which is a chronicle of some of the climbing in the 80s, especially the conversion people were going through from trad to sport and how that was kind of getting hammered out, particularly by two guys, Alan Watts up in Smith Rock and Todd Skinner all over the place, really. Todd was getting after just about everywhere. So sort of a a look at the era and also a bit of a profile to these two great climbers, one of whom, Todd Skinner, um, has passed away quite some time ago now. And talk to Jeff a little bit about his own climbing. He was there, he was chronicling it, but he was also involved. And it turns out he was a little ambivalent towards these new methods, being a bit of a traditionalist himself. But now we've got this book talking about the 80s. And I've probably mentioned it on here before, but I feel like the 80s were a lost era, at least recently. There's not been a lot of information, at least concise or big media, doing anything about the 80s. You know, the Valley Uprising just skipped it pretty much altogether. And with the whole Stone Masters kind of media juggernaut, it seems like that's all we ever talk about. But the 80s, you know, the 80s were important. And I think, in fact, the way most of us climb today, in terms of not only the fact that sport climbing is so popular, but also, you know, the idea of a red point, the idea of hang dogging, trying moves over and over again until you get them sorted out and then trying to climb from the ground to the anchors. That kind of stuff is all really coming from the 80s when they hashed out these methods for what we consider a fair ascent. And a lot of times the hashing out was, was fraught with, uh, with conflict, which is a bit of what Jeff talks about in his book, Hangdog Days. So check out Hangdog Days. We talk about it in the episode that you can get it at Amazon, but you can also go to Mountaineer's Books up in Seattle. You can go online to Mountaineers Books at mountaineersbooks.org and order it from there. might be a little more expensive, but you know what? You're supporting an awesome publishing company that gets a lot of things into print that I don't think anybody else would touch. So support those guys um, or go to Amazon, to Jeff Smoot's page, uh, whatever you got to do to get this book in your hands. It's, it's pretty awesome. When I did this interview, I actually hadn't read it yet. Um, I'd read some excerpts. It happened to be out at that point, just by a few days, but I didn't realize that um, before I did the interview. But, you know, I always laugh when I, when I see, you know, Colbert or any of these, these folks like whipping books out night after night and kind of pretending like they read them because there's just no way they have time to read all these policy books and everything else they talk about. They have a staff to inform them about the book. I'm in the middle of reading it now. I got it downloaded on my Kindle and it's awesome. So highly recommend it. And that's about it for business for today. Before the interview, except that once again, letting you know we will be up in Lander. So if you were thinking about going there, 
It's an awesome festival. I've been several, several years and always, always have a great time. Many legendary stories in my climbing life and particularly in the Enormacast life have come out of some days and nights up there in Lander. So going to be up there. Come check us out uh, at the trade fair. We're going to have a table this year, which is the first time we weren't just standing around drinking at the trade fair. We're actually going to be sitting around drinking and selling some t-shirts and hats and giving away stickers and shooting the shit. Whatever whatever we're going to do behind that table will remain to be seen. Apparently, we do have to wear pants. So check out the details for the festival at climbersfestival.org. That's climbers with an S. It is really the flagship climbing festival of the year. Okay, folks, let's get to a conversation with author Jeff Smoot. But first, a word from our sponsor. Sportiva pretty much invented the downturn shoe with the introduction of the Testarossa ages ago. Too radical, cried the olds. That looks like it hurts, cried the fearful. Ooh, me likey, whispered a prepubescent Jonathan Segrist. And guess who went on to set the climbing world on fire in his testes? Hint, it wasn't Grandpa Flatfoot waving his hexes around and mumbling gear bait at a stump. And soon every company followed suit and steep climbs opened up to the masses. Now Sportiva took the venerable Testarossa and under the direction of some of the best climbers in the world did a redesign. The new Testarossa sports better heel hooking security and the famous P3 tech to help retain that downturn fit. So check out how the radical just got more radicaler at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the Normacast. So let's talk right into talking about your book, Hangdog Days. Let's talk about the germ for the idea of writing it. And then maybe we can get a little bit back into your participation in that era that you were writing about. Reading the, the, the parts of it that I have, it's, I've always thought that a lot of eras have someone who is, you know, there like ubiquitous enough to observe a lot of what's going on, but also has that mind to kind of record maybe what's going on. And, and it, I feel like in this place and time, you seem to have been a little bit of that guy. Yeah, I, you know, it didn't occur to me while it was happening that I would ever write a book about it. Um, I was, you know, I was interviewing climbers while I was traveling, taking pictures, hanging out. And, um, you know, it wasn't until about 10 years later, I kind of dropped out of climbing in, in the late 80s, got married, had a kid, got a career. Uh, but, you know, late 90s, I got back into it in a big way and started, you know, thinking back on everything that had happened. And uh, I also started a website at the time and started blogging. Um, so I was writing, you know, it's like, oh, I got to have content. Hey, let me write about Todd Skinner climbing City Park. And then, you know, about Hugh Hare coming, you know, a month later and, and repeating it. Uh, so I just started, write, you know, writing stories about what had happened with no intention of writing a book, really. But somewhere, you know, early 2000s, I thought, hey, you know, this, this could be a book. And I wasn't super serious about writing it. I didn't, you know, go, you know, write my chapters and pitch it to anybody because it just was like, no, I'm going to write the whole thing first because I really don't know. There's so much. So I just started writing the stories down that I remembered. Um, and that it sort of progressed from there. So let me ask you this. I'm going to, we're just going to like go off in all these different directions and 
hopefully I'll be able to bring it all back together. But you're you're talking about having a family, a career, and then getting back into climbing. What 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 brought you back to climbing? Oh, I couldn't stay away forever. Right. I mean, you know, um, I mean, a lot of climbers. I've I've heard there's sort of a, a rule of thumb that people are really into it for a decade, and then they a lot of them grow up, as they say. And realize that they, you know, they have to make some money and they want to do something other than climbing with their lives. And I, so I kind of dropped out, um, you know, and uh, I don't know if I, I met somebody first and then decided to drop out. I think I was, I was becoming a little bit disillusioned mm-hmm. with the, the way the sport was going. And, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly what my, my beef was, but I just thought, you know, there's no, there's no future in this for me. I'm not going the way it's going. So I just thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go have a real life now. But that lasted, you know, 7 to 10 years and mm-hmm. then it was just like, oh, you know, I got to I got to get climbing again. I don't remember what the impetus was that that drew me back. I think I just got really bored. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just had Mark Twight on and you know, he did a serious type of climbing, you know, that was all encompassing in into his like psyche as it were but he talked about like being once a climber always a climber like even though he's not climbing anymore he sort of says he looks at life like a climber you know and thinks about things like a climber and uh yeah and i think the boredom he's he's never had that problem because he did so many other weird adventurous things but um but yeah life is just kind of like has a little less spark without it i think sometimes (laughs) so let me ask you a little bit about your process then because you did during this time kind of, or, and, and once you were climbing again, also incorporate writing into your life. Was that something that, um, you had done your whole life and, uh, and, and as you, you know, started to incorporate it as a regular thing, how did you do that? Like, what did that look like? Because I think a lot of people, the daunting task of finding time to write can be really, uh, an inhibitor to sort of their literary dreams. Oh, definitely. Especially when you have a career and a family, uh, finding time to write um, is sometimes impossible. So, you know, going all the way back, I had, uh, you know, I had these dreams of being a freelance writer uh, back in the 80s. And, you know, I ended up just, I'm writing for climbing magazines. You know, I was real trying really hard to get a feature in Outside Magazine and, and they weren't going for it. Uh, but I, you know, I was writing news, news features and reviews and, you know, doing all the freelance writer stuff that everybody has to suffer through. Uh, but yeah, eventually I realized I wasn't going to make any money at that. It was really hard. I, I felt like I was kind of whoring myself out, you know, because it's like, oh, I got to write an article. What should I write about? Oh, let me do a 10 best list. That's awesome. Cause everybody loves those. Right. Uh, but it's like, I don't want to write. That's not writing. That's just, you know, it's writing, but I don't want to demean people who do that for a living. But, you know, I used to be one of those uh, and it wasn't a very good living. So, um, you know, I became a lawyer eventually, but that, you know, that career doesn't allow a lot of time for uh, focusing on writing. So, you know, I had sessions where I'd be up till three in the morning writing and then I'd go to bed for a couple hours and then I'd go to work. Right. And I'd be really tired the next day. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it would go in spurts, you know, I'd be get like really into it and I just couldn't stop writing. Uh, and then I would not write again for a couple of weeks uh, until I got really into it again, because it just was so it was so hard to find the time and the ener- the psychic energy to really focus and, and do a good job. Although now I've learned 
that when you're writing, you really shouldn't try to do a good job the first time. Just get the words down on paper, and and then you and your editors can make it make it pretty. Yeah. So let's keep the story going on that. Like you, you're you're this guy getting these stories out of your head and onto paper uh, in in the wee hours of the night or wherever you can grab some time. So yeah, let's continue the story of of the genesis of then the book and and how these editors got involved and and taught you a few things about what you were doing. Yeah, I so finally a couple years ago I got I guess I got the courage to pitch the book and I went to the Mountaineers uh, Mountaineers books because I hadn't worked with them before. I'd worked with Falcon. Right, cuz you're you're books. actually a guidebook author. Right. Yeah, and I didn't know that until I I looked up your Amazon your Amazon page because it's primarily Northwest guidebook, so I hadn't necessarily seen your name on anything myself. Right, it is. Yeah. And I, so I've always worked with Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, with guidebooks. And I thought, well, this isn't a guidebook. Uh, maybe I want to see if I can work with somebody else. And Mountaineers Books was close by. I mean, it's a 10-minute drive from my house to their offices. So I actually walked into their office and met with Kate Rogers, the editor-in-chief there, and sat down with her and pitched the idea. And she said, that sounds good. I said, I got a manuscript. It's 230,000 words long. And she's like, whoa, you know, nope, we can't do that. You know, we're it's going to have to be like a hundred, hundred and ten thousand words. Because okay, just, cool. I'm glad you said that because I have no context about how many words is in like a, you know, two hundred page book or what. So. Right. No, this book came out at uh, almost three hundred pages, um, and I think it's about a hundred and fifteen thousand words. Okay. So you had so you had a three a six hundred page. Uh, tome about climbing the eighties originally. That's what I had, and that was yeah, it was too long. I kind of I I kind of joke about it, saying I wrote Gone with the Wind, uh, the Gone with the Wind of the sport climbing era, right? Which was just too it was too long. Yeah, um, clearly. <laughs> so yeah, so she said it's got to be cut down and cut cut in half, cut it in half, and then submit it, and then we'll 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 see what what we got. So. You know, I, I, it was very painful. Yeah, I was going to gonna go, say, was it discouraging? Like, it, it was because, you know, as I referred to it, it's like, you know, going and, you know, killing your babies. These mm-hmm. are your, your precious things that you've worked for hours and years writing. And then they say, you got to cut these out. And so I just had to go out and say, okay, well, I'm going to cut out things that, and mostly I cut out things that were personal versus things about other people mm-hmm. because it wasn't really a story about me. So right. I left a lot about me out of the book and focused more on the other characters, which are more interesting than me anyway. Right. And it kind of ends up being, um, I mean, the principal characters, as I understand it, are Alan Watts and Todd Skinner. Right. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And was that also maybe a decision in terms of focus? Like, Yeah, it was. Um, they assigned a developmental editor for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked with her for a few months. Uh, going through and she would read the manuscript and suggest cuts right and then I would go back and either accept those cuts or argue with her about <laughs> you know things that I thought no this is important right. you don't understand the relevance of this to the whole story what was the ratio you reckon between okay and no I, wait a second I mostly accepted what she said okay good. or I maybe rewrote stuff right. so that it would be she would understand it better mm-hmm. um, but there were a couple chapters that I was like, this is, this is really important to the story, I think. And so I think this needs to stay in. And, but by doing that, I had to sacrifice something else because of the, the, the almighty word count. So that was, it, it was hard to, to make choices 
Uh, but we eventually decided I, with, you know, a 230,000 word sweeping saga, uh, what you had to really find the thread and the focus of the story and then work from that. And so it, uh, we had a talk on the phone for a little while and finally decided that, you know, partly uh, it was going to be a tribute to Todd Skinner mm-hmm. and that it was a kind of a tribute to the era. Right. And that that's what should be focused on. So that's that made it easier to cut things that didn't really connect with that thread. I kind of wanted to go back to something you said earlier with um the the original idea came out of this story of City Park, which... You know, when you tell me that, I have a context for that. But let's put it into context for um, folks who who don't have this this perspective on what that was all about. Um, the story of City Park and and Todd's attempts on that, and Hughes coming and doing it as well. Can you kind of lay that story out a little bit for us? Yeah, I can. So City Park is a uh, is a is a, a nice, easy aid crack at Index Town Walls uh, in Washington, and it's you know my hometown, Craig, basically. And, you know, it's a, it's a crack you can, you know, put nuts in all day and aid climb at C1. And it's the, you know, everybody's practice aid crack. That's where they learn how to aid climb. It seemed like it could be a free climb, but it would just be like super steep pin scars, really shallow pin scars, you know, pinky and like first knuckle kind of pin scars for 90 feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were down in Yosemite and Todd uh, Skinner was working on uh, trying to free climb the stigma, well, after he, you know he did what he did there, I said, "Hey, you could you know you should come up to Washington and try City Park because it's just like this. It's longer, uh, and it might be harder. And you're looking for that you know super hard route, the leap into the future. So come up and give that a try." And uh, he did. And in 1986, he spent you know a couple weeks up there working on this this route, uh, to free climb it. And, uh, you know, he may, he did his usual hang dogging and whatever routine on it. And, uh, I think some of the locals were not happy with what he was doing. Uh, so one day during a, a rain day, uh, some, somebody, uh, smeared grease on the crack to thwart his attempts. And, uh, so he was, you know, he went up and found it, got got upset, thought they'd totally ruined his chances of climbing this thing. But then he went and got his butane torch out of his van because everybody carries a butane torch when they're when they're on a climbing trip, right? And uh, rappelled down and burned the grease out, and uh, then was able to send it. Although he missed a spot of grease at, that was crucial to finishing the the final five eleven crack, so he had to do a slight detour uh, at the variation at the end, but. Um, you know, that was just like one of those kind of, you know, at the time we were outraged. It was outrageous that somebody would, you know, try to sabotage uh, Todd's attempt to free climb this crack in that way. But, you know, as as we reflected on it, it seemed kind of hilarious years later. Like, you know, we, we found the humor in it and it made for a better story than just Todd came and climbed yeah, the totally. route. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What was the one, uh, maybe this is apocryphal as well, but... There was always a story about him having somebody send him postcards about how dry a pitch was somewhere. Is that a true story? So the story was that he he went up there, I think in late 1985 to check it out. And he went he went up when nobody knew he was up there to go see what it was about and he found that it was uh, it was wet. It was seeping water. And so he didn't want to waste his time driving up there. Uh, again, if it was going to be wet. So he found a kid in town uh, who he 
paid to go out and look at the crack every once in a while and uh, report back whether it was wet or dry. And the way he reported was he put a note on the bulletin board at the Index General Store. And so if the crack was wet, there was a note that said wet. And if he went out and it was dry, he'd change the note and it would say dry. And then Todd would occasionally call the Index General Store and ask the owner to go out and look at the bulletin board and read the note to him. And so uh, he did that. And one, one day he called and the owner said, it says dry. So Todd raced up from Pinedale uh, thinking he was going to get on it and uh, found out the crack was still seeping water. So he wasted a whole whole drive from Pinedale to go out and find out it was still wet at index. Yeah, I'm sure that kid was just looking at it and not a climber probably or knowing what exactly he was looking at. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, that speaks of a, a few things. First of all, I didn't, <clears throat> I was never sure if that was a true, true story. Um, knowing Todd's kind of penchant for the tale, for telling of the tale along with Largo, you know, that school of, of, of tall tale telling and adding a few things or not. I think he was, I mean, would you agree that that was kind of his vibe? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a, you know, always a grain of truth in the stories. It was based on something, but, you know, there was some, there was some, you know, some stuff that was just, it was great storytelling, but you didn't know if it was true. And if you heard the story often enough, you realized it changed yeah, every time changed, Todd told right. the story. So it was like the, the core of the story was true, right. but there were embellishments all along the way. And which part did Hugh play in this? So uh, Hugh had come up to Index with Russ Clune and Bob Yoho in uh, 1986 while Todd was working on City Park. And, you know, Todd let everybody get on it and give it a try. And Hugh had even gotten on it to give it a try. Um, but Index Granite didn't work real well for Hugh's prosthetic climbing feet because right. it wasn't like, you know, horizontal edges that you could tow in on. Uh, you know, vertical cracks with smears and crystals didn't really work for it wasn't gunk style climbing that, that Hugh was good at. So, but Hugh made plans to come out later in the summer and wanted to give City Park a try after he found out Todd had done it. So he, he flew out and um, I took him out there and he ended up repeating the route, you know, over, you know, two days of effort with very few attempts. But, you know, he, he had, he designed these prosthetic feet uh, specifically for that route. They were these, um, I call them hatchet feet because they were shaped like a hatchet head right. uh, made of acetal wedges and with rubber on them. So they could be s- stuck in the crack, like kicking, you know, kicking your foot right in the crack and then torquing and he could stand up on those things. Right. And so, you know, he even he kind of admitted that was cheating. Uh, but, you know, his his response was, hey, I'm a cripple. Right. <laughs> yeah. I actually had um, had Hugh on the show and and um, recounted that kind of game he would play with his prosthetics and and how people would give him hell about it but but yeah his response was like whatever you know i'm missing my legs like give me a break right um yeah that's pretty cool because i i remember um <clears throat> i mean those those feet that he made for that are pi- pictured um all over the place those very specialized feet that he made for that yeah um, and i think that was also a, you know a germ for what he was doing with you know, realizing that he could he could change. He could change the way his legs worked in a way that other people couldn't. Right. And that was just at the time that, I mean, he was just before he was going to into MIT mm-hmm. and he'd come out to Seattle to meet with the director of the Seattle prosthetics Re- research study. Right. And so I got to go with him to the, you know, up to Swedish medical center and visit with Dr. Burgess. 
um, and you know sit there while they drew on the whiteboard these ideas for prosthetic feet for athletes. Right. And so I th- that's I think is really when Hugh really got started and really got serious about how to how to design prosthetic feet and limbs uh, that could allow people to you know be equals on the playing field. Well, yeah, he'll even go as far as to say better now, you know. <laughs> right. Yes, he will. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, uh, well, that's cool. I mean, and I started this talking about, you know, how an era has this person who's who's chronicling these things. And it just sounds like, you know, we're lucky that you wrote this book because you you were, it seems like you were there, you know, you, oh, I was there. I just, uh, he was there and we went to this prosthetic thing together. You know, it reminds me of um, Dean Fidelman was on the show last summer and he was like that guy for the Stone Masters, you right. know, was, was there just all the time was into taking photos. And, you know, now we have this like priceless collection of pictures from that era. And um, so what, where was your deal with um, photography? Was that a, part of something that you were into at all with when the era yeah i was into it i wasn't you know i wasn't a great technical photographer right. but i was the i seemed to be the only person who always had their camera ready right for whatever would happen i mean it was loaded and it was ready and you know i i, I took the time to pre-focus on places where you know if a climber happened to go i didn't have to mess around with focusing i could just clip point and shoot um to to get shots and um but yeah so there's no good pictures of me climbing <laughs> yeah, but I have not. I have lots of great pictures of everybody else. Right, that's awesome. Um, so again, it seems like you were sort of primed f- for this. Um, luckily, you know, you had some interest in writing as well. But let's talk a little bit about uh, how that came about. Right, you you um, were also your own climber. Um, like so, you just said you you didn't get any of the of of the focus because you were the one doing it. But so how how did your interest in climbing kind of start? Maybe briefly, and then. Uh, more interestingly, like falling in with this school, um, which was actually a sort of, and I say school because we're talking about, you know, these, these people were willing to re- uh, preview routes on rappel and, and hang dog and sometimes place gear on rappel, things like that. These were kind of the rebels of the era. How did you end up being the, the guy that was hanging around with them versus what most everybody else was doing. Yeah, um, Marsha Volk at smithrock.com put it a really good way. She said, I was hanging with the hangdoggers. Right. <laughs> and and how did that how did that happen? Right. Um, you know, uh, I started climbing in the mid-1970s. And, you know, back in the day, like everybody else, uh, you know, I found a copy of Annapurna at the junior high library and read that and thought, wow, climbing sounds really cool. And then all the old National Geographic magazines, you know, the um, climbing Half Dome the Hard Way, you know, Americans on Everest, all that, all that stuff. I just ate that up. And so I, um, you know, I started, I got interested in climbing and, um, you know, I started finding, you know, I found a rope in the basement, just like, you know, everybody does. And then they go climb the trees and um, my parents uh, caught me rappelling out the bedroom window once and thought, oh my God you know, what are we going to do with this guy? So probably uh, in like a dolphin sit style, like wrapped around your it body. Wasn't, kind it of was thing. something like that. Yeah, right. I don't think it was good technique, but <laughs> I, you know, I made it down. Well, one quick but, thing is interesting always with this, especially with Annapurna, let's say, um, and the, the finding of the book is really, you're right. It's like, I talked to so many climbers of the era, the pre-internet era. And that's, that's what happened. They, but it's funny that a kid, you know, a junior high kid would read Annapurna 
and think that's awesome because I mean the amount of suffering that goes on in that book is uh, like over the top, you know. And it's funny that it takes a certain kid to think that's cool. Like I want to go out and suffer, you know. Right. And and like that sounds really neat. And I mean, it's kind of you know what I mean. It's like I just want to interject there. Like I've heard this story so many times, but. No, so many people would have been like, "That's appalling," and I, it sounds terrible and scary. Right. Yeah. But but part of the attraction was it did it was appalling and it was scary to almost everyone. Right. So it was it was kind of this thing that you know other people didn't climb. Climbing was hard. It was you know dangerous. It was it was suffering, and you know I bought my first rack off a, a kid in junior high school who had tried climbing and said he didn't like it. Right. You know it was it was hard and he didn't he didn't like doing it so you know i scored my first rack for 20 bucks yeah and it was a real counterculture at that point too so you know you had to have somebody that was sort of seeking the the out of the ordinary or off the path right it was a lot different than the modern culture where you take your three-year-old to the climbing gym and they grow up in the culture um nobody i knew climbed right you know i had to i had to seek it out i had to i had to discover it for myself. Right. And so, I had to want to do it. I had to yeah. be really internally motivated to want to do this thing. So what did that look like? You got your, your rack of hexes now and, uh, and what, what, how are you getting out? Uh, well, you know, until I got my driver's license, I really couldn't do very much. So I took, I took a course and, uh, they took us volcano climbing, you know, Pacific Northwest. So we got to slog up the volcanoes. And I hated that. I found out mountaineering was not the kind of thing I wanted to do. <laughs> Annapurna had led you astray. It had led me astray. But this, but but one day we got rained rained off, and so the the class went over to Leavenworth um, in the sun and did some you know easy granite climbing. And I thought this is great. You know, this is what I want to do uh, for sure because you know you don't you don't have to hike very far to get to the rocks. And it's sunny and frostbite's very unlikely. Very unlikely. You know, <laughs> you don't have to vomit because of the altitude. Right. You don't have to worry about, you know, oh my gosh, I have to poop and everybody's going to see me out here on the glacier right. kind of thing. You know, it's just like, just oh. Just mortifying for a junior high kid. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so yeah, then then you uh, you get your license and, and the world is your oyster or what? Yep. Yeah. I started going out to Index every every weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started going out by myself and doing these stupid rope solos because that's, you know, I didn't have a climbing partner. The same old story. I didn't have a climbing partner, so I went and soloed. Uh, but I met climbers at Index and started climbing with them, other kids my age. And so we went and had our misadventures. Right. And uh, But uh, it wasn't until the early 80s um, that I started traveling. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of motivated by... Mark Hudon's articles, Long, Hard, and Free, and Astro Man especially. Um, I just got, really got a kick out of reading those and seeing the pictures of, you know, climbers climbing these ungodly hard routes, five, rated 512. And so, um, you know, I really, I really modeled what I was doing after them and really wanted to get down to California. Mm-hmm. And so in 82, I took my first road trip and went to Joshua Tree. Have you been paying attention to Mark lately? To Mark, yeah, Hudon. Oh yeah, yeah. Gosh, he's he's kicking ass. He's yeah. making us making us old old people look bad. Yeah, I mean, he's I have fully like climbing way harder than he ever has in his entire life. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. totally. Awesome. I just saw him in Moab. 
so yeah, yeah, he's on a road trip with this young kid, Jordan Cannon. That's just like yeah, putting him through the paces. Well, it's great, and I, you know, Mark told me um, while I was working on the book, and I was talking with him a lot, and he told me he wants to, um, he wants to do Freerider. Yeah, that's, and uh, so I think you know he's got a good shot right now. He's mm-hmm. he's in really good shape, and uh, you know, he, um, I talked to Max Jones also. And Max said, "Yeah, Mark wants me to go climb Freerider with him, and that sounds neat. But I'd have to be, I'd have to be a real climber again to do that. And that's a lot of work." Yeah, and that's what Mark's doing is he's reverted back to this this super hardcore guy. And I mean, yeah, he's on his way. So we'll, we'll right. We'll don't see how he does. Don't this don't call Mark super hardcore. Call yeah. him badass. Yeah, because that's what Mark says to himself to motivate himself oh, right to climb on. hard. Right you on. can do this, Mark. You're badass. Yeah. He is. He's been doing great. Uh, total aside, but but yeah, it's like uh, he's definitely the banner holder for older climbers right now. Um, being sixty three, I think he is. Yeah, so. well, he's inspiring me again. I'm cool. starting to train harder, and I got to get back out, get down and do Astro Man. You know, <laughs> nice, nice. Um, all right, so you know, tangentializing as we do here on the Normcast, you you meet up with these guys in the eighties, then, um, and happens to be, you know, I guess there's sort of this lost era in my opinion for whatever reason you know we've got so much stone master lore uh which is i mean it's always been there but there's definitely been a little bit of a pr push of the last like decade the the resurgence of this stone master stuff it kind of peters out literally in in the end of the 70s a lot of these guys go their separate ways move on like you said i mean that's what mark did even in 1980 um for a while and then, yeah, there's like these like kind of splintered groups, I think, is part of the reason that maybe it's not like this co- cogent era we can talk about. Um, but there you are. You arrive in this place where, you know, free climbing is being defined and there's different camps of old guard, new guard. So t- talk a little bit about that. And again, how you ended up falling in with one or the other, having revered these guys of your youth and then, you know, you end up hanging out with the with the uh with the counterculture guys that are pushing new things yeah i i when i think back on i kind of wonder how that happened because you know i'm i'm still kind of a staunch traditionalist i i don't really enjoy you know working routes i'd rather you know peter croft is more of my hero than todd skinner or alan watts just (laughs) just because you know he just really he just like let's go climbing Right. And we're not going to, you know, I, I'm not hangdogging and I don't p- place bolts on rappel. I just, you know, find routes that are hard and I on-site them <laughs> or I solo them, you know, right. and that's that's great, you know. So I kind of aspired to that. But, um, yeah, I met Todd first in 1983 in Joshua Tree and uh, he was climbing with Paul Piana at the time, but Paul had to leave early. So uh, Todd kind of latched onto me and we did, you know, me and everybody else that he could latch onto. Because Todd had that magnetic personality and he was very inclusive. So, you know, if you showed interest and could climb well, he was happy to have you along to belay for sure, but also to, you know, to climb things. And so, um, so I started climbing with him and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't really breaking the rules too much in 83. He hadn't really embarked on, on that, that portion of his quest at that point. Uh, But he was just a lot of fun to hang around with. Uh, He told great stories um, just kind of lived this Spartan existence out of his van. And uh, so that really appealed to me. So I got three weeks in Joshua Tree with with Todd. Um, and um, I lured him up to Washington to try a route, um, an unclimbed crack in Leavenworth. 
and uh, you know told him, oh yeah, to be Washington's first five for five thirteen for sure, which really appealed to him. He's like, oh yeah, I want to do you know I want to do these hard routes that will have some sort of legacy. Uh, so he came up and he did it. Uh, rated at 512D, but it wasn't repeated for 25 years. And the guy who repeated it is a notorious sandbagger, and he said it's 513A. Okay. So we don't know how hard it really is, but definitely 513. Uh, so that kind of you know solidified our friendship. Um, and then he invited me to travel with him in 1985, uh, saying that you know, he needed a partner to go on his rash tour, as he called it. Uh, so I did, and I went on the road with him for the, for the season. And that's when he was really embarking on his, uh, you know, his quest to expand the difficulty and, and the, the methods that were used to climb hard routes, uh, which really went, you know, kind of he went against the grain mm-hmm. of the establishment. Sure. Uh, for sure. And the thing about him was he he was willing to do it right out in front of everybody. You know, he wasn't climbing in secret like Ray Jardine had done in the 70s where, he'd, you know, he'd go and establish all these super hard routes in Yosemite with his hangdogging and his, his friends that, you know, he had to keep secret from everybody. Tata just go right out in front of everybody and do it. And, you know, even if he got flack for it, he'd be like, well, you know, thanks, but I'm going to keep going. So that's kind of how I got into it. And so, you know, I, I met Alan Watts along on that trip and I don't know how I fell in with Alan Watts, honestly, because Alan was, you know, a pretty hardcore climber that nobody really knew about at the time. He was very under the radar I just started going down to Smith Rock more, mm-hmm. and Alan was always there. He was there every day, and he was always climbing hard stuff. And um, you know, the other the other Smith Rock locals were always there too. And so I just kind of fell in with that group because they were always there every time I went. And Alan remembered me from you know climbing with Todd. So somehow I got welcomed into that group, and uh, ended up you know going on a, a road trip with Alan as well. So can you illustrate a couple or at least one or one of these stories where, you know, these guys were openly thwarting or openly going against the grain um, and sort of receiving some flack for it? Again, going back to this idea of some of these stories either getting blown up or some of them being apocryphal about the pushback that everybody got, whether it was fist fights or cut ropes or, I mean, you hear all sorts of things and they also get the whole 30 or 40 years of Yosemite climbing gets, you know, you don't know when what happened, but can you illustrate a story where those guys were, you know, going against the grain and and really pushing locals buttons, maybe in Yosemite or something else? Yeah. I think that that where Todd mostly pushed the the buttons in Yosemite was when he went to try to free climb the first pitch of the stigma, you know, right there on the cookie cliff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you couldn't really do that in secret, could you? Because it's right there on the crag that, you know, John Backer walks by every day when he goes to free solo crack a go-go or whatever up there. Yeah, Todd uh, Todd, uh, saw that crack. He'd heard a story and, you know, Largo says the story wasn't true at all. But Todd had heard the story that um, when Ron Fawcett and Pete Livesey had come over sometime in the 70s to climb, they wanted to go climb... um, Butterballs, which at the time was one of the hardest free climbs in the valley. And so they really wanted to get on that. So some prankster locals took them over to the cookie cliff and said, here it is. And what they really turned them loose on was the first pitch of the stigma, which, you know, was there's no no chance that they could free climb that at all. And so the story goes that they worked on it, flailed, you know, terribly, 
And then finally the joke was revealed and everybody had a good laugh and then they went and climbed Butterballs. So that was the story that Todd either made up or remembered. I don't know which, <laughs> but, um, but that got him thinking, like, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if that could go. I mean, if it was the kind of crack that could fool a couple of Brits into at least trying it, uh, maybe it would be a hard free climb. And so I'm going to go check it out. So he went and checked it out and decided that it could be, it could be pretty hard. But uh, he thought that it was too thin. It was just a pin scar crack, but he thought it was too thin in places that he couldn't hang on to place gear. So he, you know, bashed pins in every four feet for protection, uh, which was a big no-no. You know, with the ground up ethic, you know, you got to start at the ground and place all your gear on lead. And and then, he, you know, he top roped it to death and then he started leading it and hang dogging all over it. And it was kind of under the radar, I think. Like some of the locals didn't really know about it until I opened my big mouth and told <laughs> Charles Cole one day, you know, Charles, I was making friends with some of the valley climbers and I met Charles uh, in Camp 4 and he asked, you know, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I just came back from the, the cookie cliff. You know, Skinner's over there, like, you know, hangdogging on the stigma. And it's like, what? And it's like, yeah, he placed pitons in it for protection. And he got, Cole got really mad. It's like, what? That's bullshit. And so he walked into Camp 4, you know, with the smoke coming out of his ears, you know, proverbially. proverbially and, uh, and the next thing you know, John Backer shows up at the Cookie Cliff to give Todd a lecture about, you know, what we do and don't do in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way Todd recounted that story was really funny. He's just, you know, it's like, and then John Backer told me that, you know, son, we don't do that sort of thing around here. And I said, well, thank you very much, Mr. Backer. I'll take, I'll keep that in mind. I'll take right. that into consideration. And then he goes right back to doing what he was doing. So, um, so you know, Todd, Todd got a negative reaction to what he did. Um, and after he finished the route, he had the nerve to say, you know, if anything in Yosemite is 514, this is it. Which to me was just like, you know, thumbing your nose at, at the guys. You right. Know? And uh, so, you know, they and he left his pitons in place and he left his note at the base of the route saying, hey, I'd appreciate it if you leave these pins in so other people can try the route. And, you know, as if that was going to happen, they were gone the next day. Right. Uh, so so that was one example. You know, Alan didn't really go into I don't think Alan went anywhere to do anything that provoked people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had, had a kind of sarcastic side. He was very funny and very sharp-witted. And he could just say some really cutting things that, you know, you, if you if you were the object of what he was saying, you might not appreciate it. Sure. Um, so w- we went on that trip and went down and he did, you know, crack of the 80s on his second try which like, you know, climbers have been trying for over a decade mm-hmm. to free climb this mm-hmm. crack. And he did it on his second try. And then he went into camp four and he bragged about it to Kurt Smith. And it was one of Kurt's projects. Kurt really wanted to do that, but he wanted to do it in good style. So he was, there was no hangdogging, you know, and Alan had hangdogged once, you know, before he sent it on his second try. But Alan went in and, you know, told Kurt, oh yeah, I did it. And and Kurt got really mad, and I thought, you know, for a second there that Kurt, you know, might punch him or something because it right. was just like like the anger just rose in him for a second there. I mean, but but Alan wouldn't have gone into Yosemite and you know placed bolts, right? Or you know done something really blatantly against their their moors. But you know he had Smith Rock, and he didn't have people telling him how to climb there, so he you know developed sport climbing there basically in isolation. Uh, without anybody really knowing what was going on. Well, I had a question um, reading another part of the book. Uh, I think you guys are in, in Joshua Tree and 
I think it was in Josh, but there's a bunch of, of European climbers and British climbers um, hanging around as well. And is that is that the that where you guys were? Is, is the one about the wanker? Yeah, where yeah. Jeff Jeff yeah. Wagon yeah. called us all wankers, yeah. right? Because there was this this image, and I think it continues to to today. Actually, um, it sort of ebbs and flows that the Europeans were were better climbers than the Americans, and obviously, I think Alan, at least in terms of rap bolting things like that, was he influenced by the European scene, or was did he kind of like create this? ethic in isolation and it just turned out to be like kind of hand in hand with the with what was going on in Europe from what he says initially he developed this basically on his own right he had um he had climbed all of the crack routes at Smith Rock that could be climbed Mm -hmm. basically and there was nowhere to go except to the faces and to you know everybody knew that to go to the faces meant you had to place bolts on repel because you couldn't lead on that rock. Right. You know, that rock was terrible. So Alan, Alan did that. And uh, so on Watts Tots in, in 83, he repelled down and placed all the, all the bolts on repel. And so that's regarded as the first modern sport climb, but you know, that was the, that was what had to be done. And so that's what Alan did. And he didn't really get any opposition, any right. great opposition to that. And, you know, with the success of the first one, he went on and did chain reaction right after that and, you know, just kept kept going. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's also the nature of the rock up there. It seems like it's always been perfectly clean because it's all been climbed so much. But, you know, he had to clean as well um, in terms of, you know, setting up a hard route. Part of the rappelling was also to, to, to flick off the the chunks here and there that were going to fall off in your hands. Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause if you tried to, if you tried to lead one of those faces in its original condition from the ground up, you'd have been popping off a flake with every move. Right. You'd have fallen off every move because you'd grab, grab a little flake and it would pop off on you. Sure. So he, you know, he had to go up and basically pre pop the flakes off uh, that you would pull off with your hands. And, you know, so it wasn't like really a chisel job. You basically, you could take a screwdriver and just put it behind the, the mm. loose part of the flake and pop it off. And that left some really nice edges, you know, and so that was kind of kind of manufacturing holds. But the nature of the rock kind of dictated that you do that because otherwise you'd just be, you know, have a miserable experience, as Alan put it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because it seems appropriate that these methods would would uh, again kind of um, create themselves based on the same the same conditions in two different places, because the exact same thing is what happened in France when they first created rap bolting is that you know it was we have all this limestone we have blank faces there's no gear and in fact on limestone having climbed a lot of it in canada like where the 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 um the fissures and the breaks are to put gear in is usually the worst rock you know it's like falling apart in your hands right right your traditional limestone route is is oftentimes not that awesome and then you're looking left and right to these beautiful hold covered faces but limestone needs to be clean as well um, so it's just interesting that these two separate movements appear to be the same because the conditions were the same. We have blank faces and we need to clean them first. Right. Yeah. And, and those blank faces, uh, you know, existed in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. But it was just, I think, at Smith Rock, you know, Alan lived close by and it was available and he was motivated. Uh, so it was the, kind of the right intersection of several factors that led to Alan doing that. I know that he was—he became very influenced by the Europeans after, after a while. After sure. he started reading about what they were doing and 
you know, going to Europe and seeing mm-hmm. what they were doing. And then, and, and that to him, that justified, you know, that validated what he had been doing. Right. He felt I've been doing this the right way. Right. And other people have been doing it the wrong way. Yeah. And in places like Boulder in the same era, um, folks like Christian Griffith and they were specifically had gone to Europe and came back and said, this is how they're doing it over there. We're going to do that here in Eldo. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, I think also it fe- feels like to me, and, and you can maybe back this up or not, but there had been climbing a long time in Smith, but it didn't have, you know, this, again, this like storied past and storied tradition the way Yosemite did and then the way Boulder had. And so I think like there's Alan up there and, you know, there just really isn't like a group of people to oppose him, so to speak. You know what I mean? And and meanwhile, Christian Griffith, that's where some really heated, you know, almost to violence kind of debates went down over that when 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 uh, Christian was sort of the Todd Skinner, the Alan Watts of of sport climbing in Boulder. Right. And, uh, I think yeah. I think the the Boulder ethic was similar to the the Southern California ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, all that uh, you know, Jim Erickson. Um, and Dave Brashears and just the on-site, the on-site leading, the doing the dance with the rock and encountering the rock as your, you know, not your your partner, not your opponent, kind of in in the dance. Um, and yeah, yeah, people like Christian and Bob Haran and others just, um, you know, thought where well, you know, that's the old way. But right. if we're gonna if we're gonna climb new routes, we're going to have to adopt the new methods. And mm-hmm. if we're going to climb hard and compete with the Europeans right. on our, our soil, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to do these things differently. So someone like Backer, you know, or, or in that camp, they, they have an argument that would, would probably go like, well, first of all, competing with the Europeans doesn't matter to us. Climbing harder if we're going to, if we're going to use these methods you know, why not wait until our methods are good enough, you know, leave it for a future generation. When you were involved in this, like having sort of the headspace of these traditionalists and hanging out with these guys, did you, you know, have any opinion or, or in the end, like privately find what those guys were doing maybe to be a bit of a sort of blasphemy or sacrilege against the tradition or, or what were you, you just, you know, kind of ambivalent one way or the other? Oh, oh no, I definitely had an opinion about it. Okay. I, I didn't think, you know, at Smith Rock, I didn't think badly of what Alan did. Right. Because it was Smith Rock. Yeah. And, you know, that that's the tradition that grew organically mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I think like Alan, like when I was talking about an older tradition, it's, it's almost like Alan created the first tradition in a way. I don't know. Or no, maybe not. No, the, I mean, the Smith Rock had a, a loose tradition right. of, you know, ground up and red pointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Alan broke that tradition okay. with the rappel bolting. And, you know, he didn't always red point the first ascents of his hardest routes. Right. You know, some some of them were yo-yoed and some of them were with gear left in place. Right. But um, anyway, back to your opinion. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I did. I really I really respected uh, Backer and Peter Croft's approach and, and attitude. Um, and, you know, I was... I was kind of jumping on the, you know, the Todd Skinner and Alan Watts bandwagon a little bit, especially with some of the stuff I was writing, um, you know, defending them in, in print. Um, you know, I wasn't saying that rappel bolting was okay, but I just like, you know, if they're hangdogging or pre-placing gear, that's not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you don't like what they're doing, just do it in better style right. and say you did it in better style and then you're the hero. 
you know, you get the you get the positive press and you prove that you're right. But um, but I had a, a definite, um, you know, I, I'm I was fairly anti bolt. At right. the time, I've never placed a bolt and I've chopped a few. So I kind of took a high moral position with those sometimes, um, you know, and but I was really taken aback. Uh, Peter Croft's reaction, because I really respected Peter. And yeah, his reaction was exactly what you said. We don't need to compete with the Europeans. We don't we don't need to climb 514. Why don't you know, it's kind of like going back to John Solithly. Why can't we just climb? Right. You know, just find what you like to do and do it and shut up. You know, so many other climbers, they they do have at least a, any. I guess Peter's a big exception to this, but a, a competitive streak with each other, with you know what's going on even locally or or worldwide. Um, the Europeans, at least the ones that came over here, you know, you talked about uh, Jeff Wiegand just saying that we can't climb because we're wankers. Like there was an era, I think, in the end of the '80s, in particular, when sport climbing really got going, where that was you know, kind of like the, the attitude du jour of just like crankiness and, and kind of poke in front of each at each other and, and, and even just like outright insulting other climbers about how well that they climbed. I mean, that was definitely his vibe anyway. Right. Yeah. You know, the conflict really kind of erupted with the magazines, the way they covered it, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they were just making such a big deal about every new hard route that was done. And, you know, people were getting their pictures on the cover and getting articles written about them and being interviewed for all, you know, basically a lot of spray. Right. And, uh, you know, the the climbers who weren't adopting the new tactics, they were kind of getting left behind Mm -hmm. because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't do as many new routes and they couldn't climb the harder routes, you know, uh, because they weren't adopting these tactics. Um, And so, you know, that a lot of people just thought, you know, I'm not going to you know, keep doing this to the traditional way because I'm just not going to be able to, to produce and, you know, sponsorship started happening. Right. And so, well, you know, if you're sponsored, you got to do something. So you get your name in the magazine. And, uh, so, you know, people just started going, well, the fastest way to do that is to just, you know, adopt the Euro tactics and put on some Lycra tights and get my picture on the cover of climbing magazine. In the very beginning of the show, um, you mentioned not really, remembering why you got a little disillusioned and and started looking for some other things in your life, but, you know, kind of putting it in context of when you stopped climbing, at least for that time, it seems like a lot of this stuff was coming to a head, this hyper-competitiveness, the competitiveness over sponsorship, the kind of real butting of heads around the country and anger over this stuff. Is that... Could that have been playing into your your mindset, if you remember? It could have been. You know, now that I think about it, um, I think that the moment that I remember where I thought, oh, you know, oh, my God, you know, what are we doing? uh, Was after I wrote (laughs) the article for Mountain Magazine about Smith Rock that Mm -hmm. came out in the winter of 1986, I think. Okay. And, you know, Smith Rock up till then, every time I'd visit it, it, there'd been practically nobody there. I mean, the first time I went there in 1983, I was the only person in the whole park all day. Um, and then the next day I met a guy who just drove up, happened to drive up and to see if anybody was there. And I was there. So we climbed together. So the two of us had the whole park to ourselves all day. Right. Um, and then on return trips, you know, there'd be a handful of people in the park, you know, Alan Watts and, and his friends, or I may have come with someone and we'd be climbing. 
but it was just you know we had it to ourselves and it was it, it, it was it was fun and we could do whatever we wanted and Alan was working away on his projects but nobody was really coming to visit um, I returned in 1985 with Kim Kerrigan and Jeff Weigand uh, and Johnny Woodward just for a day with those guys and then I took off but that was kind of the first um, incursion of the you know the foreign climbers a serious incursion uh, where they realized you know what was going on and after that visit I you know I wrote an article for Mountain Magazine and just saying what a what a great place it is it's like you know the the one of the greatest climbing places in America that you've never heard of and uh, after the article came out um, everybody heard about it and you know that spring I went there instead of Joshua Tree and the place was packed <laughs> it was just like so full and you know climbers from all over the country and all over the world and you couldn't get a parking space and you had to wait in line on routes and you know everybody was up there in their lycra tights and they were you know swearing every, every time they fell off that you'd hear the f-bomb and whatever whatever else some other really in, entertaining things that climbers say when they sure and and it just it you know it's like oh my god you know we've turned this great place into this like almost like disneyland and so I, I was like, wow, you know, single-handedly ruining. I yeah, I didn't. Rock. That's not what I had in mind. Right. I didn't intend to do this, but but I saw like this is this is what's going to happen everywhere. Right. And I was like, well, I don't know if I really want to, you know, I don't know if I want to do this right. anymore. Well, don't go there this weekend then. I'm not going this weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, because things have changed a lot. Um, <clears throat> that's interesting. The the uh, you know again like what you just said about people in Lycra and falling and swearing and. You know, because I, I always think of that as this real punk rock kind of era of climbing where these guys that were like elbowing their way into this sport climbing thing. And I mean that, you know, that they were they were definitely being pushy and having to break the rules. And then I think that, you know, with guy that tended to sort of give them that attitude, like this fuck you attitude, you know, because they kind of had to have it to to get what they were getting done done. And if you look at that era, it's like here in Rifle, which was a little bit later, but was this big germ of like real sport climbing, you know. Um, it was a real angry kind of weird era when those guys were first in there doing all those hard routes. Yeah, yeah. Look at look at me. I'm bad. Yeah. I'm a sport climber. Yeah, totally. That uh, was it. And know? yeah, and that wasn't the, you know, that wasn't the vibe leading into that. Right. But it just like, I think 1986 is when I noticed it really erupted mm -hmm. and just, I didn't know there were so many climbers doing this. Right. You know, I I'd been, I guess I'd been in relative isolation right. with, you know, Alan at Smith Rock and then traveling with Todd. Well, it's it's interesting that to me, it was this real kind of rough and tumble, pushy era, but it did all settle out into kind of creating the way that we climb today. You know, the, the, the sport climbing not only survived, but it's the most, I think, practice type of climbing in the world now by by the most amount of people hang dogging is not even i mean it was a pejorative that that word you know kind of funny but also kind of you know people would yell at it at each other as as an insult you know that's not even a consideration other than some real sort of dank disappearing places and out of the way places in the world so um, did you have an idea that this huge trend was, was being set and, and maybe was it that, that realization that's, that you maybe felt like the tide had turned? Yeah, that's the moment I felt the tide had turned really, because, you know, climbing as an adventure sport, I think it, to me it, personally, it kind of died right there. Um, I felt that, 
that it had, it had changed. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the it wasn't the sport that I had grown up with. Uh, something new had emerged, right. and and you know, I, I uh, ironically I was part of making that happen, <laughs> which is like I did, this is not what I intended to do. Right. What, what am I doing? I have, you know, I have defiled the temple. I know, I know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, some, I, I mean, it definitely, you know, I can't say the change was for the worse. Um, clearly climbing is super popular. Um, uh, people have done amazing, amazing things. Um, you know, I credit the, the sport climbing, um, the birth of climbing gyms, mm-hmm. um, the, the explosion of climbing gyms really. Right. I mean, it's gotten so many people into climbing who would never have thought of going climbing because it's such a, an inviting, embracing, you know, place to go and kids grow up in the climbing gyms now. Yeah. And, you know, then they go outside for their first time and, you know, on site of 513, uh, which, you know, we used to have to work our way up through the grades for sure. years and years yeah, and yeah. years. And even then it was like 513 is really hard. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a totally different thing now, but, you know, people continue to go back to, you know, I love it that people are doing trad a sense of sport routes. I, right. I think that's great, especially when they you know, they don't work them. They 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 try them on site with mm-hmm. on gear. Um, that's that to me says that you know that tradition hasn't died. It's just you know still in the hands of of, of a few. Right. The, the people who are willing to suffer and take risks are still out there, and the, you know they're still doing that. Ultimately, what do you think the your intent or your hope for for this book's uh, legacy? to be as people um, pick up Hangdog Days and, and read that book? Um, what do you hope they take away? I think that I just intended it as a, a snapshot of the era from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I saw, some, some of the characters I hung out with, so they can get a flavor of what it was like climbing during that time and how things changed and who was responsible for it. And you know, I do hope that people who don't, know what happened who you know yeah got got the um, got the 70s and got the 90s but didn't know what happened in the 80s uh can read that and get a better understanding of how the sport evolved during that era um i think that's i think that's mostly what it was about well they can get it obviously at amazon but um but if you really really care about mountaineering and climbing literature you should go to the mountaineers books uh website and buy it there Yes, Mountaineers is a a, a, a storied um, institution in the Northwest that has uh, taught taught climbing uh, and mountaineering for years, and it's a nonprofit, right? That, you know, so the, the 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 profits to the Mountaineers go to support those programs. Yeah, and and there's not many other publishers that that would have taken your 250,000 words and and helped you that much to get it down to a to a proper book, so. Um, you know, that, that's what they're doing up there is taking these projects and making them happen where I think a lot of other publishers wouldn't touch it probably. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if, um, you know, when they have a successful book that helps subsidize the other books, but they, they do put out a lot of books on a lot of different outdoor activities. Um, you know, rock climbing, mountaineering, hiking, Mm -hmm. whatever. And, and they're just really, you know, helping, um, keep, get, get the word out to everybody. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for sitting down and stopping by the kitchen. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.
All right, folks, thanks for listening as usual. And thanks to Jeff Smoot for coming to town and coming to my house and getting this thing done. Once again, check out Jeff's book, Hangdog Days, Amazon, or better yet, mountaineersbooks.org, and get yourself a copy. Fill in this little gap in your climbing knowledge, especially a little younger, wondering how we got to this red pointing, bolt clipping paradigm that we're in now. Check it out. All right, remember that you can go to the Help Out tab at enormacast.com to help out the podcast by following the Facebook page, writing a review at iTunes. Actually, the Enormacast has so many reviews at iTunes. The Enormacast has almost a 1,000 reviews, I think, and the, the large, large percentage of them are quite good, and I appreciate that, but it's pretty wild because I can look at podcasts that go out way, way further way bigger audiences than the, the Enormacast that have way less reviews. I think the reviews do something good. Um, they mostly make me feel good, although frankly, I haven't looked at all of them because that's a lot of reviews to look at and I kind of get embarrassed when people compliment me. I do actually literally filter out the few bad reviews and read those because that's, you know, just the kind of person that I am. Anyway, you can also do some other stuff there, join the Facebook page, but also tell your friends. I get emails a lot from people who say, I just found this thing. I've been binge listening, which I do not recommend. But if you got to, you got to. Uh, Anyway, so people are still finding the podcast, so help me out with that. And finally, if you feel like donating a little bit of money to the podcast, you can do that there as well. And no, I am not starving over here. The enormous baby is not starving. But remember that this does take a bunch of work. and A man should be paid for his work. I think, and the sponsorships do a part, but the donations do a big part as well. So if you feel like it has value and it's gotten you through some boring times or tough times or just some drives, then uh, think about kicking a little bit of money down. That is all about that. Okay, folks, the weather in the Western United States, and I think actually much of the United States and Canada has not been conducive to climbing in the last couple weeks. Yosemite got washed out. Rifle Colorado here on the Western Slope has been washed out. The Utah Desert's been washed out. I know the Midwest for what's climbing out there has also been getting dumped on. So I don't know, East Coast, you guys doing all right? What about the rest of the world? Anyhow, take it easy. I guess that's more time for some cast. But when you do get back at it, of course, check your knot. And actually wear a helmet too. It's time for helmets. I'm talking about helmets now. Helmets are cool. Let's make them cool. You know, people used to not wear helmets skiing very often, even like a decade ago. And now it just seems silly and stupid to not be skiing, at least on a resort with a helmet on. And they're cool. So let's make climbing helmets cool. And if not cool, at least smart. I have things that, if they let us bolt, will be 514B, and there's some chance even harder. And it's a matter of, we'll become strong enough to do them. We will have the commitment and the time and the weather. If we are allowed to bolt, then we'll have tremendous climbs. 
for the, for the Europeans and the rest of Americans to come back to next year.